the limits of the power and authority of the president. I know what is legal and what is not. My adherence to due process and the rule of law is uncompromising. Rewind with me to the summer of 2016. Rodrigo Duterte has just been inaugurated the president of the Philippines. But not long after that, he began to relentlessly attack anyone who questioned him. Filipino-American journalist Maria Ressa became one of Duterte's targets. That's after she published a story about corruption in the Supreme Court of the Philippines in her independent media outlet, Rappler. Ressa is a fraud. You are a fraud. And someday, in bold letters, we will show your incongruity. You are a fraud. That was Duterte speaking at a press conference in July 2020, and the campaign didn't stop there. That same year, Ressa was first convicted of cyber libel, and she continues to fight those charges today. She also faces other criminal charges related to her work. Those charges are widely seen as reprisals against her reporting. But her journalism has had a huge impact. Last year, Maria was one of two journalists awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for safeguarding freedom of expression. And now she's written a book. It's called How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for Our Future. We sit down with her to talk all about it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, offering online access to licensed therapists. Therapist Joy Berkheimer shares how BetterHelp uses their intake questionnaire to help clients find a therapist that makes them feel comfortable. Finding the therapist that's the right fit for you is like dating. (laughs) Uh, You are literally over here swiping and swiping, right? Um, No, this therapist might be good for me. No, they will not relate to me whatsoever. They're not going to understand me. What's really nice about BetterHelp is how they have updated the way that you can search for a therapist that fits you. So now it is so specific around Hey, what's their gender? What's their cultural background? People in our country and other countries might feel marginalized for different reasons. And BetterHelp is really good at making sure that you can put your preferences in and set yourself up for having the healthiest space to be honest and flow through your processing. To learn more and get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com 1A. Let's get right into the conversation with Maria Ressa. Maria, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So a lot, a lot has happened since that summer of 2016. Um, You've been awarded one of the most prestigious prizes in the world, but you're also waiting for rulings on several cases that could send you to prison. I just want to first know how you're processing everything that's, that's happened. Oh my gosh, that's a really hard question to answer. Yeah. It's a, a step by step. You know, um, I know that there's a Damocles sword hanging over both Rappler and me. And so I know that's meant to intimidate us, to make us work against ourselves. So we try to kind of always brush that off and keep doing what we're supposed to do. But in terms of, you know, feeling my freedom getting hemmed in, I mean, this is one of the things that. I wrote about you don't really know who you are until you're forced to fight for it. And and I've yeah, it's funny, I'm I'm not a swash 
I, you know, I'm not a swashbuckler. I grew up, you know, in the golden age of journalism, there were very clear standards and ethics. Even speaking the way after my first arrest, that kind of unshackled me because I stopped being a journalist, putting those guidelines in my head that prevent me from speaking outside what our standards and ethics manuals tell us not to. And then I realized I need to speak for myself as a citizen of this country. Mm. It's, it's a long-winded way of answering you. I guess part of it is, I think about it sometimes like climate change, like pollution. You know, it's just depending on what we do on a daily basis. Sometimes the air is better, and so you breathe in deeply, and sometimes it's really polluted, and you try to minimize physical exercise. That's kind of what I do every day. I wake up in the morning, which way is the wind blowing? <laughs> you know, but you keep going because yeah. that's the key thing. You yeah. know, you don't voluntarily give up your rights. I want to focus in on something you just said. It seems every election cycle, um, I see a post somewhere on social media of a journalist explaining why they're not voting and how for them that's an exercise of impartiality. And um, for me as a, as a black woman in this country, the right to vote is very precious to me. Um, I consider it one of the the core tenets of my citizenship, but how has this experience made you rethink how you feel about what it means to be a citizen, a participant in a democracy. So it's so interesting to me that American news organizations are grappling with, you know, how, what's the line between personal... I'll define two ways that we've always looked at it. And this was at a time when I was still with CNN. I said that objectivity doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But for journalism, there is a whole process of that is dictated by the standards and ethics manuals of a newsroom that guarantees objectivity of the news group, right? So that's those are two different things. You know, when I when I first came as a reporter and opened the Manila Bureau, I was a five foot two Asian American. I'm Filipino American. The person I replaced was a six foot two white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. And his stories were very different from mine. I could understand the language. I my story choices are different from his. We know this. This is why you ask for representation, right? I think I was the first Asian American um, bureau chief that was named by CNN in Southeast Asia, and other women followed after that. But um, as a person, as the reporter, you sit there and you tell people the way you see the world, and then you add context. You know, it's like if we're if we're sitting in a room and you're sitting at the front of the room versus another reporter in the back of the room, and your only goal is to tell people what the room looks like, you'd have to tell people where you're sitting in the room because what you will see will be different based on that. But then what makes it objective, that word that is maligned and used against journalists, is the process of having an editor on top of you, another editor on top of you. You know, if it is an investigative news story, we will bring legal in. And there will be, if it's sensitive, the way we did some of these stories in Rappler, the managing editor would come in. Every terrorism story in Rappler, I would look at as the executive editor. Um, That's objectivity of the news organization. And guess what? It is very expensive to have that. Mm -hmm. 
And we don't have that when it's only one person, which is why this kind of atomization of reporting just kind of sometimes makes me laugh. You know, it isn't, it is impossible to be objective as a person. You can provide context, but it is the process of journalism that makes it that way. Um, the second thing in that is that uh, I guess for me, I, I grew up, I spent t- um, 20 years with CNN and I opened the Manila and the Jakarta bureaus. Uh, I was a breaking news television reporter. And, and that's really great training for, for where I am today because that means that I handled all the conflict areas in Southeast Asia and South Asia. I was in Korea, which by the way has the toughest tear gas. Like you learn little things like this, but when you... When you're the reporter, you learn to assess the danger around you, and then you have exactly two minutes to bullet point three main things, like 400 years of history in the present moment of the past. you got to report it. You have two minutes to do it. That's fantastic training, and that's kind of, I think, what I learned to do as a reporter, which is when I became angry, i.e., like when I was arrested, <laughs> and, and something I could never have imagined Right? I've been arrested in war zones. And then because you're a reporter, you say, I'm a reporter, this is my team. And you're, you're normally released immediately. Like in, in Muslim Christian conflict in Ambon, we were pulled in. But it's never, it's never like what happened to me on February 13th, 2019. And I know the dates. By the way, the date mm-hmm. of that Duterte quote was July 8th, 2020. I know these dates. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Um, when when I was jailed, and I was uh, I the the arrest warrant the arrest happened exactly at sunset, so that I wouldn't have had time to post bail. Uh, I felt in anger as a citizen. I, I, I mean, as a journalist, it was like okay, yeah. and then you know you 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 sit on your emotions. But as a, as a citizen on Valentine's Day. I probably said the harshest words I'd ever said to a government, and they're not harsh by normal people's standards, but we journalists were trained in a particular way. Mm. So now I go with the facts. Everything I've said is fact-based, evidence-based. I go micro, I go macro, and I try to shoot the arrow directly to where it needs to be, to hit the bullseye. When you think about Duterte's campaign against you, you said that you can now see what you missed when this started to unfold. What did you miss back then? Information operations. Because like many people, I thought that this is like peop- like misinformation. This is also one of the reasons I get upset when American organizations, sorry, I'm saying this here, right? But like when, when news organizations use misinformation when they mean disinformation. Misinformation is random kind of t- game of telephone. That's not. But when it is a concerted grab for power, when it is insidiously manipulative, disinformation is the bullet that is pushed through information operations. And at its worst, it's information warfare. I didn't learn that until after the data came back. And that was after I'd already been attacked with 90 hate messages per hour. At the beginning, you think, oh, my God, I must have done something wrong. All these people, they're not people. You know, this is information operations. 
Maria, you blame Facebook for profiting from bad actors instead of punishing them. I mean, 2017, you met with Mark Zuckerberg, hoping to talk about the problems his platform was perpetuating, but you say he didn't listen. And in your book, you call the company, quote, one of the gravest threats to democracies around the world. Explain why. Uh, It's essentially turned the information ecosystem upside down. Um, the, The easy one is to say, you know, it is surveillance capitalism, which is the, the, the word that was used to define, the words used to define the business model. And we didn't get that until 2019 from Harvard Emeritus Professor Shoshana Zuboff. But what that means is that essentially they said lie, lie all the time, and we will reward you with greater distribution. And then if you lie and you increase fear, incite anger, hate, uh, us against them, then you get the widest distribution. This is what the data shows us, but what they actually did say. So let me be factual on there, right? That's my extrapolation because that's why the world is upside down. I keep saying, you know, we are like in in Stranger Things. We're in the upside down and we must come right side up again in order to protect our democracies. Because, you know, if lies get the widest distribution, that's an MIT study from 2018, Lies spread at least six times faster on social media. And it isn't just Facebook. I mean, I have the data from Facebook. And the reason most of the book focused on on Facebook is because in the Philippines, 100% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our internet. But, you know, every social media platform uses the same growth algorithm, which is they recommend friends of friends, which, by the way, is the algorithm that polarized societies. Every social media platform uses our data, encapsulates, captures our data without our knowledge, and then uses it to micro-target, insidiously manipulate us. So it's really that, that in the end, all of these things that, you know, there are distancing words like what the social media platforms will say is that they will take your atomized posts and then they will use machine learning to build a model of you. That model of you knows you better than you know yourself. Right. But models is like is a word that has no meaning in general. Replace the word model with clone. And so they say, because we used our machine learning, we own you. We own your clone. And they take that clone of yours and use artificial intelligence, bring it upstream. This is where all the pollution, where all the damage begins. And all of our clones that becomes the massive database for micro-targeting. A system of advertising that isn't advertising, it is what, this is insidious manipulation, this is behavior modification, and all of us have become Pavlov's dogs in that system. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg made these comments about disinformation in 2016, 2018, and then in 2021. Personally, I think uh, the the idea that you know, fake news on Facebook, uh, of which you know it's a it's a very small amount of of, um, of the content, uh, influenced the the election in any way. I think is a, a pretty crazy idea. I'm very committed to making sure that Facebook is a platform for all ideas. That is a, a very important founding principle of of what we do. Um, we're proud of the discourse and the different ideas that people can share on the service, and that is something that, as long as I'm running the company, I'm going to be committed to making sure is the case. It's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections, and hate speech. 
as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. Maria, how much change do you feel Facebook has made in recent years? Not enough, too little, too late. Because in the end, you know, when it is the business model, when it is surveillance for profit, uh, the, the database is still there. The insidious manipulation continues. And, you know, if they had kept it to, say, advertisers, in some ways we would have this. But it, it goes beyond, right? The, the psychological impact on each of us is it, it manipulates our thinking fast part, the amygdala. But then it went from a system of advertising for, for, for companies to geopolitical power play. And this is when it became... Uh, when it began to shift power globally away from democracy and towards fascism. So, no, I mean, listening to him again, thank you for putting all of that together, but I will tear my hair out, you know, because I was actually there in 2016. And to hear him say again that it is a small amount of the content, again, he knows this. It isn't about the content. It is about behavior. It's about the impact. It's about how you keep people scrolling, right? And as they kept people scrolling during those years, Facebook made tremendous amount of money. By, If you compare it to a news organization, it's a license to print money. And they did. But the harms. So I'm sorry that he's sorry. What is he willing to do now? I'm thinking to a, back to a moment in your book, and it, it's when you had a chance to actually speak with Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm, I may be misquoting, so correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. But you said to him, you know, 97% of the people online in the Philippines are yeah. on Facebook. And his response was, "Where are the other three percent?" And it and it really captured um, to me the fact that the technology has always moved so much faster than the ethics, the policies, the yes. rules around it. It was about yes. acquisition yeah. before effect. Yeah. And I guess my, my question to you is whether you think the damage is already done, like, whether you think there is a way to reverse course. The damage has been done. Democracy has been destroyed in many parts of the world. Violence has happened because online violence is real-world violence. Impunity, which continues to happen still online, right? Because if the gatekeepers allowed behavior, attack behavior, um, to happen, when, when those attackers figure that out, they keep going. If they were taken down at that moment, then they stop. And it sets the rules of the game. It's kind of like, you know, traffic lights on the street. The traffic lights are there, but if all the cars can just ignore the traffic lights, no one would follow them. That's what, that's what their gatekeeping did. No one followed the rules, and it had cascading failures from the virtual world to the real world. Because we only live in one world. Impunity online then started to kill the checks and balances in the physical world. It started to begin to kill rule of law. We've seen this. I mean, there's a reason why democracy has been rolled back to, to own 60% of the world now lives under autocracy. We are electing illiberal leaders. We are electing digital populists, digital authoritarians, because this is the way our biology has worked. This is the way the platforms did this. I'd, I'd say the other part of that is that, 
you know, we're at 1989 levels of democracy. So you're, you're asking, can we do more? Yes, it must. Every day that they do not, you know, I'm sorry, I have so many things to say. I say wanted them. to say about say this, them. right? Like, it's like, so first, it's, it's, if you think about it like this, in 2016, I appealed for enlightened self-interest. Because you just assume that they would no, none of these American tech companies would want to destroy the very conditions that gave rise to their success, the system of trust that they crushed, right? Who would think that they would do that? Well, apparently a lot. They continue doing it. And every day that they do not practice leadership to protect the public sphere, we become weaker. We the people, we democracies, we slip over closer to the tipping point towards fascism. This is what they have enabled. The kind of behavior that, you know, in civilized society wasn't acceptable before. Before social media, it was about how do you keep, you know, the bad actors out of the public sphere? It's name and shame. Name and shame doesn't work in the age of social media. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation. Those who were vulnerable in the physical world, those were women, women of color, LGBTQ, if you were vulnerable before, you are now even more vulnerable with social media's incentive structure. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Maria Ressa in just a moment. And remember, connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back into the conversation with a clip from Maria Ressa's Nobel speech. She highlighted the names of journalists who've been jailed, imprisoned, or who paid with their lives for doing their jobs. Let's listen. I remember the brutal dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi the assassination of Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta. My friend, Luz Meli Reyes in Venezuela, Roman Protasevich in Belarus, whose plane was literally hijacked so he could be arrested. Jimmy Lai languishing in a Hong Kong prison. Sunny Shue, who after getting out of more than seven years in jail, started another news group and now is forced to flee Myanmar. And in my own country, 23-year-old Frenchie May Cumpio, still in prison after nearly two years, and just 36 hours ago, the news that my former colleague, Jess Malabanan, was killed with a bullet to his head. More names have since been added to that list. Um, Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was killed during a raid by the Israeli army in the West Bank. That's despite wearing a flak jacket marked press. How are you thinking about the risks journalists face today? Uh, the data shows it. It's increased, yet we continue to do our jobs, right? I would say as the as this kind of upside-down world, as the incentive structure prioritizes lies, attacks. Um, the journalists have, in general, in almost every country around the world, we've continued doing our jobs. We haven't gotten this great distribution. We have paid. We are forced to sacrifice so much. I mean, I asked this question, aside from naming those names, and I know many of them, why do I have to be okay with going to jail just to do my job? I mean, you know, if you're a banker, would you do that? These are, and yet, here's the thing. 
I think this is so critically important. The mission is so critically important. But for anyone listening today, journalists can't do this on their own. We need you. We, this is it. This is really the, the question I think democracies around the world are facing. What, the question that I ask in the book is the same question we had to deal with in 2016. What are you willing to sacrifice for the truth? Because we need those facts. Otherwise, we can't ever work together. You can't have democracy. And you know that existential thing of climate change? How do we solve that? That echoes a tweet we got from someone who says, thank you so much for bringing us Maria's perspective. My book group, currently studying the protection, maintenance, and defense of democracy, is reading her book in early 2023. I so respect and appreciate Maria and her work. So I wanted to make sure to share that with you. I also want to share this message we got from Spice in Baltimore, Maryland. I wanted to ask Maria Reza a question about... Burma and Myanmar and Aung San Suu Kyi and what she thought of that situation. Aung San Suu Kyi was such a hero for so many of us working on social justice issues. And then it seems that the tides turned um, and she became more of an oppressor. Um, I was wondering what you thought about that and the movement there and how it relates to you know, things that happen in the Philippines. Your thoughts? Facebook enabled genocide in Myanmar. That's the first, right? Uh, it, it's Aung San Suu Kyi directly. Uh, I think it shows you what happens when you don't speak against atro- atrocities happening around you when because silence is consent. This is something that I write about in the book, right? You have to go back to the values. Yes, she's a Nobel laureate and she's in prison now and she needs support and needs help, but these are the sometimes, you know, I guess I I worry uh, about that. It's a tough one. Here's the message we got from Deb in Cincinnati, Ohio. When I lived in Zimbabwe, a dictatorship, at first the dictatorship seemed like a joke. But any sense of humor about dictatorship fled. And now, many years later, we're at the point where my daughter and my new grandson are forced uh, in Zimbabwe to attend political rallies under threat that the home or the car will be vandalized if they don't go. I cannot see my grandson. I have to wait until after the elections. My daughter fears I would say the wrong thing and cause harm to her entire family. So I'm heartbroken here in Ohio because of a dictatorship many thousands of miles away. Deb, thanks for that message. And Maria, you can hear you can hear the emotion in, in Deb's voice there. And as she says, living under an authoritarian regime often means you have little or no say in your political system. It can mean you face danger if you try to speak out. What do you say to people who are in these situations and, and feel hampered by what they, they feel they can do safely. Well, first, my, my heart goes out to Deb. Uh, we are looking at Zimbabwe, and, you know, it is, um, I guess, what do you say? First, I feel for what you're going through, and I hope that your family is okay. I think the second thing is that, you know, never, never, never lose hope. Right. And and the perfect example to that is to look at what's happening in three countries in in Ukraine, where people are actively in hand to hand combat for their for their democracy. The second in China, 
where it is it is oppressive, so oppressive that they have they've they've been reduced to just holding up white slips of paper to show something is wrong. Um, fascism, you know, the the last chapter of my book is called uh, "Why Fascism Is Winning." And uh, the subtitle, so that's the macro, and the subtitle, which is the personal lesson I have, underneath it is collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Um, this is what we have to do. Uh, look, democracy is far from perfect, but it allows, you know, what is happening to your family can't happen in a democracy. There are excesses for sure, but it corrects. Um, so I hope that... Um, I hope that you don't lose hope that Zimbabweans, uh, I'm certainly in touch with journalists there also, that you also find uh, a point where you regain those freedoms again. It, it takes a lot of courage to put your life and freedom at risk as you have. And in your book, you talk about having to get permission to travel from the Filipino government and being denied a visit to your mother who was diagnosed with cancer, needed to undergo surgery in Florida. And you write, quote, I absorbed the pain, reassured my family, and coped the best way I knew how. I worked. And I, I read that, but my heart also, also breaks for you. Um, and I guess I just want to know if you're okay. Like, how sustainable is this, Maria? Don't make me cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm okay. No. Um, look. You know, when I was with CNN and I was doing breaking news in conflict areas, CNN actually assigned someone in our international desk to just pick up the calls from my mom, you know, mm. because she would break through satellite calls and I'd be live. And, you know, it's like, so um, I'm good. Uh, I work. And I also know what happens next will be dependent on what I do now. Um, it's the same way, I guess, like Zimbabwe, like China, like, these governments that get so much power that they feel they can oppress the levels that we're seeing today. I mean, Russia's a perfect example. My co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Dmitry Muratov, um, Russian journalists have essentially been pushed out, right? You can't, he's been forced to already stop publishing in Moscow, Novaya Gazeta. If, if they used the word war mm -hmm. to describe what Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I mean, there's no other word, right? But if they used it in Moscow, then he, he would go to jail for 15 years. So he's funny because he, then he just started telling me, okay, I will use the word hell, you know? <laughs> I mean, we cope. Yeah. We cope. Yeah. That's what we have to do. But then, you know, we can do this for a period of time, but we can't do this alone. But thank you for asking, and you, sh you made me emotional. I will stop. <laughs> Well, I, I do want to acknowledge, though, I think I hear from so many of my colleagues. Um, these are conversations I've had with my husband um, and also from our listeners about how discouraged they feel. And I think they look at someone like you and see someone who's so courageous. And I think your willingness, and I appreciate it, um, to also share that vulnerability is in a way also encouraging because it's like it's okay oh. to have those moments when it's just like this, this is this is terrible <laughs> and I don't feel good about it and I'm hurt and I'm upset. So I just yeah. want to say I appreciate you being willing to go there. I really do. 
I no, really no, do. no. I mean, thank you. You know, and if you in the book, I actually say vulnerability is a strength because when you drop your shields, that's when you make the strongest connections, right? I mean, and here's the other part, right? If you're feeling down, man, cynicism and hopelessness, these are tools of a tyrant because when you are when you give up, that is when a dictator wins. And, I, you know, this is not a battle outside America. This is not a battle in Zimbabwe, in the Philippines, in Russia. This is a battle in America. Um, you have to not give up. <laughs> and also, please, listen to the news. You know, the, the most recent surveys are saying that, uh, that you don't want to get the news because it's bad news. Well, there's a reason it's bad news, and people are sacrificing a lot to bring you that bad news. Just because it's bad doesn't mean you can't make it good. I guess that's what I... We have agency, you know, um, and we can't bury our heads in the sand because when we look back a decade from now, we're going to look at this time and we're going to say, what did I do? How did I help? What could I have done again? We got this email from Ruth in Pennsylvania who says, Maria, every time I hear you speak, I feel more inspired to keep challenging the powers that be, even though my only tool is blog and petitions. Thank you so very much. Maria, I want to turn to Rappler. It's still running despite efforts by the Filipino government to shut it down. Uh, The site lost 44% of its reach in a month during the government's harassment campaign in 2016. What does it mean to you that this organization you helped found has survived this long? survived and thrived and thrived you know i mean this is the the irony of it um the more we came under attack the more our community came around us because this is when i say you're not alone it is from personal experience almost everything actually everything in that book it's micro and macro there's the data there is also you know my own way to power through it what does that mean what we learned in rappler is that um a coal can turn into a diamond. You know, under the greatest pressure, you, if you stick to it, you fight through it, you create. I guess that's where we are today. And we need to accept that the world as we knew it is gone. That we are standing on the rubble of the world that was. And that we need to come together to create a better world. And we actually can. Isn't that it's insane to, to go from such highs and such lows? But Rappler proved this to me. In the middle of all that, you said that, you know, within four months, we dropped 49% of our advertising revenue. In January, after the government first tried to shut us down in January 2018. And technically, this war of attrition should have shut us down. We should have gone bankrupt. But... It brought out the best in us because once we saw this, we all came together and we looked at everything we were doing and then came up with an alternative, sustainable business model looking at tech and data. And what we found out was that, you know, we came out with something that then that then powered us throughout. We were ready for the pandemic lockdown. We were hiring people when other news organizations were letting them go. And if we hadn't done that, and if we hadn't come under such immense pressure, I don't think we would have found it. So it is, you know, it's a Chinese proverb also, crisis is opportunity. Uh, I hate this time period, really. I wish it wasn't like this. But 
it can also bring out the best of who we are. Because I, I feel that's what our newsroom has become. Everyone, you know, after the government tried to shut us down in January 2018, I did a general assembly. Rappler is about 100 people. We keep it below Dunbar's number because we don't have mid-layer management. 63% women. The median age is 23 years old. It's young. But that's the median age of the Philippines. After we got that shutdown order, I figured that, you know, uh, my team will have different levels of risk. Um, what they can, what they can take, and more than that, what their parents will allow them to take. So I did a general assembly where GA is what we called it, and I just said, we're moving into a new phase, and not everybody may want to go with us during that time period. This is going to be a time where we're going to fight. We're going to fight for what we believe in. We're going to keep doing good journalism. We're going to hold government account, the same government that's trying to to shut us down and put me in jail, right? Um, and not one. Well, what I offered them was, if you want to leave, tell us now, and we'll try to place you in another news organization. And, you know, not one of our editorial team took that offer. Forged in fire, you come out stronger. Well, Maria Ressa, I could talk to you for another another few hours, but unfortunately, uh, that is our time Really briefly, just remind us again, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Inspiration spreads just as quickly as anger. Yes, the data shows it. That's Maria Ressa. She's co-founder of the independent Filipino news outlet Rappler. The site was known for exposing the corruption in the government of the former president, Rodrigo Duterte. Last year, she won the Nobel Peace Prize, and her new book is How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for our future. Maria, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Wonderful to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Today's show was produced by Haley Blassingame and Lauren Hamilton. It was edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.